And we welcome you to the Friday Morning Show on WGTD. I'm Gregory Berg. I'm really excited to be speaking once again on the morning show with Dr. Anthony Barnhart. I might mention that he made a short list of my favorite morning show interviews from 2021 uh, at the end of the calendar year when it was time to replay some of our favorites. Uh, My conversation with him recorded earlier in the year was a proud member of that list. Uh, I am reconnecting with Dr. Barnhart because of a really fascinating and fun course that he is teaching right now at Carthage, where he is associate professor and chair of the Department of Psychological Science. He is teaching a course that is called The Cognitive Science of Magic. And it's important to note, in case you haven't heard any of our previous conversations, that Dr. Barnhart uh, aside from his specific field of, of sort of academic expertise, is also an accomplished magician. And so in this course uh, going on right now during J-term, he is exploring some of the sort of the bedrock principles of, of how magic, in parentheses or in quotations marks, can be achieved with, with an audience. And um, he has brought in a number of different friends and peers and colleagues from the magician community, uh, to be part of the course. And uh, from what I've seen on Facebook, it's been tremendous fun and endlessly interesting. And I'm so glad that Professor Barnhart was willing to return to the morning show to uh, have a conversation with me about this particular course and a little bit more about how the uh, how being a magician has been a, a fairly important part of his life for, for quite a long time. Uh, Professor Anthony Barnhart, we welcome you back to the morning show. Thank you, Greg. It's always a pleasure to chat with you. I'm so glad you uh, welcomed my uh, invitation. Uh, I remember heading the email by saying, I hope I don't seem like a pest or a stalker or some combination (laughs) of the two, because you were just on the morning show, but I just couldn't resist uh, issuing this invitation. This course you're teaching right now just sounds like so much fun, and beyond that, really interesting as well. Before we start talking about the course, I think it might be interesting for our listeners who maybe didn't hear our previous conversations to hear the story of how you got interested in performing magic. I remember that it has something to do with your swimming coach, of all things. That's right. Um, yep. Tell our listeners the story. So when I was seven years old, I was on a, a swim team, the Sterling Stingray Swim Club. And uh, the coach happened to be uh, quite a talented magician, and I really liked the coach. And he started giving beginner's lessons at the local rec center. Uh, so I took him and was hooked from the very start. Uh, and it has shaped who I am as an individual to this very day, including the, the, the development of this this very course that we're talking about. So when one learns the, 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 the craft of this kind of magic, typically where does it begin? Where does that study begin? What do you remember about the very first sessions you took with your swimming coach? Sure. So I think most people probably begin with those really junky magic sets for kids. Uh, but but it, it rarely takes with that because the directions are just so badly written and they're they're mostly trash. Uh, so I think it, oftentimes it really does take interactions with a professional magician who inspires a child to 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 spend more time thinking about these things. And that's what happened with me. I think I probably had those 
magic sets when I was a kid, but they were, they're basically useless because they, they don't put any money into, into putting together thoughtful instructions to accompany them. Um, but but it's, it's challenging to get into magic um, because it is still sort of a secret society and it does hold its secrets uh, rather firmly. Uh, but every library has a magic section with some of the classic texts in it, the, the books that are actually well-written for teaching magic. Uh, and I was lucky to be in a, a region that had some magic shops nearby. And magic shops, bread and butter usually is, is offering lessons. Uh, so I had a, an early mentor in Rockford, Illinois, who was a, a really remarkable card technician. And so I took some of my earliest classes in sleight of hand from him, a fellow named Richard Goff. Uh, and I think that's, that's what solidified my interest in the sleight of hand side of magic. Hmm. There's, there's certainly like gimmicky magic. You can buy props that do the work for you, but what's the fun in that, right? right? Like, isn't it, isn't it fun to develop the kinds of dexterity that allow you to deceive the senses with just normal, everyday objects like playing cards? Hmm. Over the course of your childhood and into, for instance, your high school years and so on, did magic remain a fairly consistent interest of yours, or did it sort of ebb and flow over the years as other things came along to divert your attention? It was a pretty consistent interest. Um, I tried to play basketball my freshman year of high school, and the number of magic gigs that I was getting promptly like got in the way of being a competitive basketball player, so I dropped that uh, to focus on magic. I was still active in theater and music, but I think those are kind of kindred art forms to magic. I think they helped me become a better magician through my, my training in, in theater and music. Um, in high school, I also had the, the benefit of really supportive parents. Um, I, for two summers, went to New York uh, to, to take part in the Tannins Magic Camp. Uh, at that time, it was on Long Island, which was one of the sort of premier magic camps in the country. There were basically two at the time, one on the West Coast, one on the East Coast, and Tannins was uh, the better of the two, in my opinion. And uh, that experience, those two summers, spending some time at Tannins Magic Camp, I think really gave me a leg up on becoming a more proficient entertainer and technician when it comes to magic. And I made, you know, lifelong friends and mentors through those interactions. So those are benefits that I think the average young magician just didn't have uh, and that, that helped me really dig deep grooves of magic in my life. <laughs> Very good. You've already started to answer this question, I think, a little bit, which is what is essentially the arc of development when one is as serious about magic as as you were and remain to this day? I mean, in, in what respects do you grow and develop and improve over the years? Yeah. Well, I can only speak to my trajectory. I don't know if there's any consistency across the trajectories of other magicians, but it begins by spending a lot of time alone in your bedroom. <laughs> with a deck of cards in your hand, uh, just practicing these these pieces of digital dexterity until you're proficient at them. And once 
once you have sort of mastered this set of tools, there are almost an infinite number of magic tricks that you can produce out of them. Um, so I think the, the first stages, at least for me as a magician, were, were learning these pieces of sleight of hand and becoming adept at these pieces of sleight of hand. Um, oftentimes in this phase of development, young magicians will get really fixated on one kind of magic. So I was, I was a card magician when I was a kid. That was where most of my energy and my interests went. Um, but that has its downsides because I uh, eventually just got burned out. I felt I'd, I'd gone as far as I could go with card magic, and I got really tired of the themes of card magic and needed to branch out into other things. Um, I think one of the risks also that comes with this fixation on sleight of hand is it neglects the entertainment side of magic, the theatrical side of magic, which uh, I have come to appreciate as the more important aspect of performance magic. Uh, it doesn't matter how you achieve your miracles it matters how you present those miracles. They have to be entertaining. They have to capture the interest and, uh, and curiosity of the audience. And so all of the most powerful tools in a magician's arsenal are theatrical and not necessarily um, sleight of hand based. Right. It, 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 isn't, it isn't all about dexterity. It, there's, there's something else that is necessary. Although it's interesting when you were talking about uh, learning more about that sort of entertainment or performative aspect of all this, I immediately jumped to how you literally interact verbally with the audience, how you yeah. introduce a trick and how you engage with the audience with your words, which yeah. I'm sure is part of it, but I don't think that's all you're talking about here. Sure. Well, I think as, as a theatrical art, magic is relatively unique in that there's never, almost never, is there a fourth wall. Uh, magic happens in the interactions with the audience. Certainly there are, there are styles of magic that are kind of one-directional, where the magician is just like doing his thing and it plays out the same every time. I'm thinking of like grand stage illusions like you might see in Las Vegas. Uh, but I tend to think the most effective magic is really interactive magic, where the audience has a hand in the trajectory of each magic trick. Uh, and so in that sense, magic can be, um, for a young magician like I was, a useful tool in enhancing your ability to interact with other people. Um, but, but it is a relatively unique set of theatrical skills that come along with it, and probably a set of theatrical skills that have made me a more effective educator. They're, mm. they're really kind of kindred skills, education and and performance magic, I think. Absolutely. So as you reached high school and were thinking about going off to college and so on, at what point did psychology become uh, the, the path you wanted to choose? And what connection was there between that and your love of magic? I mean, did the one, uh -huh. in a sense, give birth to the other for you? Yes. Um, I think I'm I was a rare undergraduate in that I was a psychology major from day one and, and never, never left that path. Um, and, and it was magic that inspired that interest in psychology. As, 
when you are performing magic, uh, you are essentially practicing folk cognitive science, right? In order to figure out how to deceive a mind, you have to have a hypothesis about how that mind works in the first place. And so, so magicians are kind of informal psychological scientists who are testing their hypotheses about the mind in the real world every day. And so it, a lot of magicians develop an interest in psychology because magic highlights the quirks of our cognitive systems and the, the fallibility of our perceptions and our memory. And so it's magic that drove me toward my interest in psychology. Uh, I never for a moment foresaw myself being a psychologist who would use magic in the way that I'm using it. That was unheard of uh, when I was an undergraduate. I thought I was going to be a clinician and um, all of my, my undergraduate training was kind of leading up to me applying for graduate school in clinical psychology. But as I tell my students, perhaps the best thing that ever happened to me was not getting into a graduate program my first year out of undergraduate. Hmm. Uh, I ended up getting a research job where I was working alongside uh, clinical psychology graduate students. And that firsthand experience of seeing the kind of hoops that they had to jump through to work with clinical populations and the, the workload that comes from learning to be not just a psychological researcher but also a clinician, it, was, it, it did not resonate with my interests in psychology. Hmm. Uh, oftentimes it just seems like clinical psych is the, the path of least resistance because it's the most visible form of psychology. If, if, if Joe Schmo off the streets thinks of a psychologist, they're probably thinking of a clinical psychologist. Um, it's just the prototypical psychologist. But uh, when I didn't get into clinical psychology grad school, I started rethinking, like thinking back on my experiences as an undergraduate. And I had worked in a lab while I was an undergraduate with a, a cognitive psychologist. Um, cognitive psychologists are pure experimental psychologists. They're not trained in anything clinical. They're in, they're in the business of studying the building blocks of thought. So things like memory and perception and language and attention and learning and um, I thought back to the classes that I'd taken in cognitive psychology and the experiences I'd had in the lab. And in hindsight, I don't know why it wasn't apparent to me while I was an undergraduate that cognitive psych was the right path for me. I, I ended up applying to a bunch of graduate programs in cognitive psychology. And whereas I, I didn't get a position in clinical psych, I got a bunch of interviews for cognitive psych and landed kind of a dream grad school position, working with a mentor who was a renaissance man who was willing to, to, to move outside of his comfort zone if there were intriguing questions to be answered, and who was willing to support his graduate students' development beyond just like having them as bodies to work on his research project. Hmm. Uh, so I, I fell into a great thing with uh, Steve Goldinger at Arizona State University. But still, at that point, I didn't think that magic was going to be a part of my career. I went to graduate school to be a language researcher uh, because language is still not well understood by psychologists. This 
complicated behavior that we all engage in, and it's we by no means have a complete understanding of how language works. But partway through my graduate program, I started seeing scientists publishing work that used either techniques from magicians in the laboratory or that directly tested hypotheses that came from the world of magic. And I thought to myself, there's nothing special about me to study language, right? I don't have any kind of leg up on anybody uh, when it comes to studying language, but I have all of this training in magic that could set me apart from other researchers in this new budding research area. So I started looking at who the movers and shakers were in this new area, and I realized that two of the most prolific researchers of the time were just down the road from me in Phoenix, Arizona, at a place called Barrow Neurological Institute. Hmm. These were Steve Macknick and Susanna Martinez-Conde. And so I reached out to them and told them who I was and what I was up to, and we struck up this long-term collaboration. They were, at the time, considering writing a popular science book about the neuroscience of magic. Uh, And so I ended up uh, contributing some ideas to that book, and I became their magic teacher for a couple of years. I built an act for them to audition for the Magic Castle in Los Angeles, and we are, we are still collaborators to this day. We wow. published a piece together last year uh, that, was, that was bringing together our interests. So that, that's how we get to this, mm. how we get to this scientific study of magic, and, and I guess that's my, that's my path, my strange indirect path toward doing this. I love it. For those of you just joining us, I'm speaking with Dr. Anthony Barnhart from the uh, Psychological Sciences uh, Faculty at uh, Carthage. He's actually the chair of the department and teaching a course right now for J-Term at Carthage, which is called The Cognitive Science of, of Magic. Um, I was about to ask you a question, but I think I'm going to refrain because I think as we start talking about this course that question is going to get answered along the way. That question was going to be to have you share a couple of examples of the research you have done or the serious inquiry that you have done in in scientific fashion in matters related to the craft of the magician. Uh, But I think a lot of that is going uh, going to become clear probably as we just talk about this course. First of all, I remember from something you posted that this is actually the eighth time you have taught either this course or something sort of related to it. Take us back to the first time you taught a course like this, what it looked like, and in general, how different that first effort was compared to how you are teaching this course today. Sure. So um, the I first taught a course like this one uh, at Arizona State University while I was a graduate student, but it was formulated differently. I was approached by, uh, I don't know, I guess the director of undergraduate studies or something like that. Uh, They were interested in upper-level psychology courses that students from a variety of different disciplines could take. So psychology courses that didn't have a lot of prerequisite uh, requirements, uh, courses that would be sort of interdisciplinary, and courses that could potentially be hybrid. This was their, you know, this was the early 2010s. They were beginning to dip their toes into hybrid and online forms of, of courses. 
And so I developed the first form of my course as a hybrid course uh, where uh, they were doing a lot of reading on their own and assignments online, but we would meet uh, once a week in the evening for something like three hours to, to digest the things that they'd been working on outside of class. And so in that first class, it wasn't a cognitive science class. It was just a general psychology class. So I tried to do my best to make it um, kind of a review course for a bunch of different sub-disciplines of psychology, addressing how magic touches upon each of these sub-disciplines. So we spent time talking about social psychology. There was a little bit of clinical psychology, certainly a good amount of cognitive psychology, but it was it was pretty surface level. It wasn't going very deep. Uh, but it was in this first course where I had the idea of trying to not only introduce these students to, to psychology through the lens of magic, but to introduce them to the magic community and make it feel a little bit immersive, like they're learning about this content from the movers and shakers in this area. So I structured the class so that every face-to-face -face class period uh, was half uh, filled with a guest, either a magician who had spent time thinking about the psychology of what they do, or a scientist who uses magic in some way in the work that they do. So every class opened with some guest, and then the second half would be me trying to wrap everything up in a nice little bow and, and failing most of the time. <laughs> uh, and But that kind of model for the course is is what persisted across iterations. I um, I was lucky when I was in in Phoenix. There were lot. There was a thriving magic community in Phoenix. Lots of high-profile magicians who lived there, um, but also lots of high-profile magicians who flew in to do gigs there, right? And who or who traveled through town. And so I was able to get a really remarkable list of guest speakers. Uh, including people like James the Amazing Randy, um, who is an icon in skepticism and, and magic, and who was traveling through town and was willing to come to the course. Hmm. Um, after I finished up my doctorate at Arizona State, I ended up uh, working as a faculty member at Northern Arizona University for a couple of years. Northern Arizona University is a different story. It's up in the mountains, up in Flagstaff. It's not what you think of as, as Arizona. It's not a desert. And it's also away from any kind of magic community. So mm. the course, the course took on a different flair there, and it got more deep in the weeds. It became a capstone course that was meant to encapsulate uh, everything the student. It was all psychology majors, and it encapsulated everything that they had learned along the way. It tried to it tried to bring all of their training in psychology together. Uh, in in some form. So now students were getting deep in the weeds on research papers that spoke to magic, and they were developing research proposals that that built upon all of their previous work in the department. Uh, so the guest speakers took a took on a backseat role. I didn't have very many, uh, but we were within driving distance of Las Vegas. So I. <laughs> I made the risky decision of taking a group of undergraduates to Las Vegas. Uh, I only caught one of them sneaking a drink. Ah, all right. That's pretty amazing. <laughs> and we all actually. made it back safely. All right. 
but since moving to Carthage, uh, it, it's taken on my favorite structure yet. The I, J term was new to me. I'd never been at a place that had a January term. My undergraduate uh, school didn't have a January term, so I had to figure out what this was all about. And this course, I think, is perfectly suited for what J term is meant to be. I think J term interdisciplinary sorts of courses thrive in J term, and January term courses are a place where students get an opportunity to see how things they're learning in the classroom relate to the real world in interesting ways. And so I have, I've really doubled down on the immersive features of this class in January term since it's all the students are thinking about for this month, and we spend so much time together, three hours every day. So I've, I've kind of shifted back to bringing in lots of guest speakers. I have two or three guests a week in the class, uh, and we're lucky to be where we're at. Um, Chicago is a thriving magic community, and some of the greatest minds in magic are in the Chicago area and are willing to, to kind of draw back the curtain and show these, these undergraduates some of the secrets of magic. Fantastic. Are the students taking this, by and large, psychology majors and coming at this from a very sort of serious perspective versus somebody who just said, hey, there's this course about magic. That sounds like fun. That sounds more fun than trigonometry or whatever. Uh, I mean, by and large, are we? Are you talking about psychology students in the room? It, it is, by and large, psychology students. And I think that it's it's that way just because they're the ones who know who I am and who hear about this course through the, the grapevine. Um, I do have a handful of, of students with other majors, but it's dominated by psychology students. That said, um, it, it's just become a catalog course, a regular catalog course, and it only has one prerequisite, uh, introductory psychology, because I want to be able to use some of this, some of this terminology comfortably without having to, to double back and do remedial introductory psychology work to, to get everybody on the same page. We're speaking with Dr. Anthony Barnhart about the course that he is teaching right now at Carthage as part of J-Term. And J-Term, we should maybe explain uh, if people haven't heard about that before. That's Some colleges are set up this way where you have a first semester and a second semester of sort of standard 13 weeks with different classes all day long. But during J-Term, uh, you are a given college student is only taking one class, and it's roughly the equivalent of a semester-long course, uh, but taught three hours uh, either in the morning or in the afternoon. And and typically, a college student at Carthage is not taking anything else during J-term except that one course for which they are registered. And a lot of other things go away. I don't think athletics goes away, but I mean choirs are not rehearsing and no one's taking voice lessons and other such things. So it can really uh, be an experience of sort of exceptional focus uh, for the students as they take, in this case, a a class called uh, the Cognitive Science of Magic. So I have followed with interest on Facebook uh, some of the guests that you have brought in uh, to be part of this course. I wanted to ask you, first of all, about somebody by the name of Christopher Carter, who you brought in to talk about mentalism. Uh, can you explain the term mentalism and the place that mentalism has within the world of performative magic? 
Sure. Uh, I would say mentalism is magic of the mind. Uh, mentalists uh, attempt to theatrically simulate the abilities that psychics profess having. So uh, they're in, they simulate the ability to read minds or to, to influence physics with their mind, to move objects with their mind, or uh, shifting their consciousness to see places that are uh, in different times and different places, they, they, or even speak with the dead. They, they simulate all of those things. And Christopher Carter um, is one of the most prolific mentalists of all time. He's, I'm so lucky to have him just next door to us down in Chicago. Uh, he is an icon in, in mentalism circles and in many ways has shaped the form that mentalism takes today. And so it's exciting to have him come and talk to my students. This is the second time he's visited this class for me. And he's able to give, he's kind of a historian as well. He's done a lot of writing for the mentalist community. Uh, and he was able to give the students this, his, situate modern mentalism in, in history through um, uh, paralleling it with early spiritualism of the, of the 19th century and how a lot of these early spiritualists uh, who were using deceptive techniques realized they could do just as well uh, presenting it as a magic show or as a, as a, a mentalism performance. And uh, the techniques that these early spiritualists were using to deceive people into believing they could talk to the dead uh, have, have moved forward and modernized uh, with with mentalists of today. Mentalists of today are using many of the same techniques that these early spiritualists used. Hmm. And so Christopher Carter uh, just absolutely destroyed my students in every way. Uh, he, he broke their brains doing things that they didn't think <laughs> were possible. Yeah, he's amazing. Now, what I'm assuming occurred in at least one of those visits that Christopher Carter paid to your classroom is that he got up and, in a essence, did his act, mm-hmm. and then when it was all over, explained what he had just done. Is that sure. roughly what happened? Most of these people are not willing to, to get deep in the weeds on their secrets, uh, but they're, able to, they're willing to speak more abstractly about some of, the, some of the techniques that they use. So people like Christopher Carter um, use kind of traditional magic tricks, but framed as as psychic, as, uh, as mind reading. Uh, but they also occasionally dip their toes into legitimate psychology. So, for example, um, there is probably everybody's familiar with the Ouija board, which has these occult uh, uh, frames. Like people, people think of it as this occult device, uh, even though it was you know, first developed by Milton Bradley as a game. <laughs> Uh, and it's um, the reason the Ouija board works is through something called the idiomotor response, where um, just the relationship. So what you're thinking can impact the way your body is behaving, and it's not always perfectly conscious. 
So if everybody around the Ouija board who has their fingers on the planchette, the little plastic thingy that slides around, if everybody's kind of thinking the same thing, the little muscle impulses that these thoughts create will lead to movement of the planchette. It's like the people, it's the wisdom of crowds. The little bits of motor activity that each are producing come together to lead to large movements of this planchette. Well, this can be exploited in really interesting ways. Um, there's a fellow named uh, the Amazing Kreskin, who probably many of your listeners <laughs> have heard about, who would exploit the idiomotor response to find where his paycheck had been hidden in the auditorium before the show. Uh, the, he'd have the person who hired him usually or someone else hide his paycheck anywhere in this large auditorium, and he would... Um, have that person concentrate on the location of the object while holding onto his elbow. And he'd kind of walk them around the auditorium and feel differences in their tension as they move. And he could read these differences in body tension, and it would guide him to his paycheck. Uh, and so this can be it can be framed exactly as what it is, or it can be framed as some sort of mind reading. Uh, and People like Christopher Carter have practiced this skill and uh, do remarkable things with it. So that's a place where like, legitimate psychology is being used uh, for theatrical means. Hmm. So how would this relate to, for instance, when we hear about psychics? Mm -hmm. uh, are they engaged in the same kind of exercises and utilizing some of the same techniques? Uh, I, I would say that they are, uh, though they don't always know that they are. Mm. Uh, it is quite easy to fool yourself into believing that you have powers that you don't have. I often relate the story of my colleague Ray Hyman, who is a psychologist at uh, University of Oregon, um, and a rather prolific cognitive psychologist, also a magician. And when he was an undergraduate, um, he, just for fun, started doing palm reading. He had a little book on it. And so for fun, he started reading people's palms at parties, entering it, like starting in earnest, didn't necessarily believe there was anything to it, but thought it might be a fun way to, to interact with people. And as he started doing palm readings, he started really believing that there's something to this, the kind of responses he got from people, the remarkable things he seemed to know about a person based on their palm convinced him there was something to this. Uh, but he had a psychology professor at the time who he, who he told uh, about this experience, and the professor had an idea for him. said, hey, next time you're doing a palm reading, just as an exercise, tell them exactly the opposite of what you think their palm is telling you. So if, it, if their palm says they're an extrovert, tell them they're an introvert. Uh, just do exactly the opposite of what you think the palm is saying. And he did this, and it worked just as well. <laughs> and so this convinced him that there wasn't anything to the palm reading, that uh, rather people are more alike than they are different, and people will seek out meaning in what's being told to them. Uh, they'll ignore the things that don't resonate with who they think they are, and they'll glom onto the things that do match who they believe they are. And people all like hearing nice things about themselves. Mm -hmm. So keep it positive is another moral there. Right. Uh, and, and this is something that is true of all people who profess to be psychic. I mean, there's been research on this. Um, 
people who seek out psychics uh, experience confirmation bias. They will remember the things that were perceived as hits, truisms about their identity, and they will very promptly forget anything that doesn't resonate with who they think they are. Uh, This is something called cold, well, often this is framed as cold reading, where a psychic will make a series of fast uh, claims about a person, many of which are true of all individuals, and then based on feedback they're receiving from the client, they will try to get more and more specific uh, informed guesses about this person's identity or past. Hmm. So in at least one of our previous conversations, we've talked a lot about skepticism. Mm -hmm. And so, for instance, when it comes to this matter of so-called mind reading, Mm -hmm. uh, is one of the functions of this course and or purposes of this course to make your students more skeptical going out of the course than they were coming in, in terms of things like having your mind read? Sure. I think it's not one of the explicit learning objectives, but I think it comes for free uh, with this kind of content. I think uh, there, the overlap between the skeptics community and the community of magicians is pretty large. I think magic gives you this appreciation of just how fallible human beings are when it comes to finding patterns in the world around them. Uh, So I think as you learn magic, uh, skepticism kind of comes along with it. I do hope that this class will will help students kind of refine their BS detectors uh, (laughs) as they are uh, confronted with so much BS out in the world. Um, But it's not necessarily one of the explicit learning objectives of the course. You had another... uh guest by the name of, I think, William Pack, if I'm reading my handwriting correctly, who apparently talked about awe and the need for, uh, that human beings have for control. And apparently, I'm guessing maybe the excitement of when one has a sense that they are not in control, that something else Uh is in control, and that when one can create the, the impression of that, it can really be exciting. Is that, was that kind of the gist of his presentation? That was, that was where it went. Yeah, Bill is a buddy of mine who's a professional magician down in Chicago, but is also, is also kind of a renaissance man. He does a variety of different shows, not just magic. He does kind of educational uh, presentations for libraries on things like the Great Chicago Fire or the history of Halloween or things like that. Um, so he's, he's very interested in just information generally. Uh, and Bill came in and did did portions of his act, and um, he did a rather unique thing. I'm trying to decide how much I can uh, say in this interview. Uh, he starts with a demonstration that looks very much like magic, but is just a real demonstration of a very strange physical ability. Hmm. And he often uses that real experience that like real demonstration that looks like magic as a foot in the door for people to then accept magic tricks as real. Hmm. Uh, And so uh, his presentation kind of paired with my presentation for that day, uh, which was in many ways about how the experience of awe, A-W-E, 
kind of makes you stupid. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> when you are in a state of awe, you have this feeling. This, it's a reminder of how little control you have over the world, right? Like if you're standing in front of the Grand Canyon and you're looking at this big old hole in the ground and you're experiencing this awe, you are realizing, one, that you are just a teeny tiny little cog in this wheel of the world uh, and that there are forces in the world that are so much greater than you. Like this big Grand Canyon was carved into the ground by a river, a little teeny tiny river produced this thing. Uh, and so awe makes you feel small. It makes you feel like you lack control. Well, when you're in a state where you lack control, you try to glom on to any opportunity you can of reestablishing the perception that you're in control of the world. It's called compensatory control. And this compensatory control makes you more susceptible to all manner of illusions. So, for example, there was a, a classic study published in the journal Science where people... Uh, where experimenters induced a sense of either having control or not through a technique that we don't have time for, but that's very elegant. Uh, and they later presented people with a bunch of just like kind of blurry, splotchy black and white images, some of which had a line drawing embedded in them. And the participant's job was to try to identify if there was a line drawing in each of these splotchy images. Well, the people who felt they lacked control over the world, detected more illusory line drawings in these images. They saw things that weren't there. And this kind of perceptual control was a way for them to fool themselves into believing they were regaining control over their world. They were finding order that didn't exist hmm. in the disorder. Uh, and in many ways, this is, this is something that magicians can take advantage of. If you can elicit awe early on in your magic show, uh, people will be, have the appropriate mindset to accept subtle suggestions further down the line. Wow. So it can make the job of the magician a little less difficult if the audience is already in an awe state. Right. How often do magicians do this? Probably not very much. It's hard to elicit awe. Uh, but to the extent that magicians elicit awe, it will benefit their deceptions. Hmm. It's interesting to think about our mental and emotional state of awe and what that means, especially in terms of our of our openness as well as our susceptibility. Uh, in our in our last couple of minutes, I want to give you a chance to talk about something talked about by Dr. Kevin Ladd, mm -hmm. in which he apparently talked about uh, the influence of magic on science. Mm -hmm. um, I, I can't even imagine exactly where this goes. Uh, <laughs> give us at least a, a summary of, of what he explored in terms of the connection between magic and science and, and magic's influence on science. Sure. So uh, Kevin Ladd is a professor of social psychology at Indiana University South Bend. Uh, he's a magician. Uh, and, and obviously a social psychologist. Much of his work in social psychology is in the psychology of religion um, and the psychological benefits of prayer, among other things. Um, and in fact, uh, we were able to bring Kevin to campus and do double duty. Uh, he was a postdoc 
uh, advisor to our colleague Melanie Nyhoff in psychological science, who is doing a J-term course about positive psychology. So we got Kevin Ladd to campus and, and worked him ragged. He <laughs> lectured to both of our classes back to back. But in my class, he was talking about um, historical interactions between magic and science. And I usually start my class with some of this, whereas I start in the 19th century uh, he goes back to the 16th century. So that's what he did. He went way, way back to some of the earliest books that included discussion of magic, and almost always those books that were, were introducing concepts of magic were doing so as a way to encourage scientific thought. Uh, and, it's, and based on uh, Dr. Ladd's presentation, it suggested an important role of magic in the Enlightenment itself as a way to uh, encourage people to think rationally about the world and to see through some of their, um, some of these errors of cognition. Um, so as a, as a budding magician, I, we have this, the story that's told to us is that the very first magic book was uh, The Discovery of Witchcraft um, by Reginald Scott. Uh, I'm trying to find the, the date of this book as we speak. Uh, 1584 is wow. the book, The Discovery of Witchcraft, and it was, a, <laughs> it was a book that was debunking witchcraft of the era, trying to convince people that we, sh- we, shouldn't, be, um, we shouldn't be burning these people at the stake, that they're really just magicians and they're using this, these deceptive strategies. Well, it turns out my training, or the, the training of every magician I know to believe the discovery of witchcraft was the first magic book, is totally erroneous. And, um, and Kevin Ladd was identifying books from almost a century earlier that were, were using magic. Um, a book by this guy, Pacioli, uh, that was using mathematical magic tricks as a way to encourage critical thinking about the world. I don't know that I can do Dr. Ladd's presentation justice uh, in our our short conversation, but he was highlighting um, beliefs about the world that were widespread of the era that these scientists were debunking through magic tricks, very similarly to the way that James the Amazing Randy debunked Yuri uh, Geller's psychic abilities through magical demonstrations in the 1970s. Hmm. Amazing! I never would have thought that that your course would would take your students to a place like that, and and with a long historical view on top of it, that makes it all uh, even more interesting. So you have just a few more days to go, and I have a feeling you and your students are sorry to see the course come to an end. <laughs> Well, it is a lot of work, uh, but it's fun work. Um, in the, in the, usually when I teach this class, we, we have a bunch of different excursions. We go to see magic in the wild and the places where it's meant to be performed, not in a classroom. Uh, I've, of course, dialed that way back during the COVID era. We are only going to, on one excursion, and it's happening on Wednesday of this week. We're heading down to Chicago uh, to see a magician named Kayla Drescher at the Chicago Magic Lounge, which is a beautiful venue in Chicago that's being very responsible about things, 
checking vaccination cards and requiring masking. And I encourage anyone who's listening to to go see some magic at the Chicago Magic Lounge and see a beautiful venue that was built specifically for magic. Wow. And it is, it's amazing. Fantastic. Well, this has been just great to explore uh, some of the wonders and the uh, that have been explored in your class, which again, uh, for J. Termit Carthage, is, is titled The Cognitive Science of Magic. And at the helm, Dr. Anthony Barnhart. Dr. Barnhart, great to speak with you once again. Thank you so much uh, for sharing about this uh, wonderful and fascinating course. And uh, I look forward to our further conversations on The Morning Show. Thanks a lot, Greg. This was fun.